Pollution from food, nitrate and phosphate. These are the most hotly debated topics in reefing. Almost no one's willing to go on record as to what the best levels or approaches are. It's time to share our recommendation on when nutrients turn into pollution. And when pollution turns into poison, the exact numbers all these tanks are gonna run on and the most comprehensive reason as to why to date. All that is coming up. Hi, I'm Ryan and this is 52SC. This is the first of a handful of episodes on pollution in the reef tank, effective solutions to combat the results of those approaches in these seven tanks. Today, we address the single biggest source of pollution in most modern reef tanks. It's the daily addition of fish and coral foods. Foods as a source of pollution is a challenge that's addressed in every successful tank. Foods are nutritive or beneficial by nature, required for survival, and even the broken down organics and residual nitrate and phosphate can be critical in some tanks. That's until the import and export find themselves out of balance. They start rising. At some point, they become pollutive. Most reefers would agree to the simple statement of no fish or coral wants to live in polluted water, but we might not agree on what polluted water is. What if we apply the actual definition of pollution? A substance that has harmful or poisonous effects when sufficient quantities are absorbed, respirated, or ingested. Then I think everyone agrees. Some pollutants or poisons may cause immediate mortality. Some may make the fish or coral sick or susceptible to other stresses. Some poisons may even lead to subtle changes in health that may not be noticed for years. The mission is a better understanding of why some corals thrive and others randomly kick it in answers to the old tank syndrome, which is just a blanket diagnosis for everything was going fantastic. I haven't changed a thing, but now the tank took a hard turn for the worse. Prolonged stress and poor water quality is one of the most likely culprits. Pollutants from foods can be broken down into two buckets, nutrients like phosphate and nitrate, which are mostly near to midterm problems and easily correctable at almost any point. Then everything else, like the buildup of unused vitamins and minerals in the tank, many often untestable even with ICP because they bioaccumulate in the tissue and near impossible to diagnose when mortalities occur but also entirely avoidable with some common sense approaches. We hit it all, but kick it off with a portion of this that almost no one thinks about, the toxic bioaccumulation of excess minerals from foods. Most reefers do consider foods as a pollutive substance. What goes in must come out in some way or accumulates in the tank perpetually. What they don't think about is pollution as a poison. Another part of this that almost no reefer thinks about is those vitamins and mineral premixes in our foods or the fact that there's zero chance that they're added in the exact rate that our fish and coral uptake them in. So whatever imbalance there is will ultimately build up in the tank. There's a group of pollutants or poisons that may take many months to cause a problem yet totally avoidable. This is basically every biologically active element at the wrong level. I'm gonna use copper as an example because it's in most foods and most reefers believe that it isn't good for a reef tank. This applies to many other elements or minerals in our foods as well. What most reefers don't know is copper's not a poison. Copper's essential element for coral's biological processes like energy metabolism, reactive oxygen species detoxification, iron uptake, and cellular communication. Stripping out all of the copper would be seriously detrimental to the tank. However, that's at the right level. Once copper gets too high, too high in this case being barely measurable with our test kits, copper becomes a poison and causes all kinds of problems. In this study, they found that sea fans initially launched an immune response to a damaging infection at low levels of copper and temperature stress, but when copper concentrations were boosted, sea fans' immune system response failed, which suggests that copper stressed the sea fans and eliminated their immune potential. Now, that's not acutely poisonous. That's the inability to deal with normal stresses. Pollutants like poison or copper or other biologically active elements are the kind of thing that rounds to zero reefers correctly identifying as the cause of poor health and mortalities in a reef tank. 
because it's human nature to focus on something that we did yesterday or last week is the most likely cause, not something we started six to 18 months ago, like fish food. In this study on the subcellular effects of copper on zoanthids, they found the normally flexible bodies contracted and became rigid. The zoanthid tissue revealed that the copper had caused subcellular changes to the proteins within the tubular body. Collagen increased thickness to five to seven times that of the controls. A decrease in net photosynthesis was observed at what they described as the highest copper concentrations, but their highest copper concentrations was also around the lowest readable range of our hobby test kits. You can see why it would take a pretty advanced or informed reefer to correctly identify this as the problem, but in reality, it's that type of reefer that would likely avoid this altogether with good filtration practices that we'll describe today. The tricky part in this is copper and some other elements you can't necessarily test for accurately, even with ICP, because copper gets bound up in organics as well as bioaccumulates within the animal's tissue where it builds up until it interferes with its biology and those built up levels within the tissue start to cause a problem. Now that's copper just used as an example, but what we're talking about is every biologically active element in the food that's required for healthy biology, but also builds up over time when it's not added in the exact ratio that the various animals utilize them in, which is near impossible. This is all a very real potential contributor, that mystery called old tank syndrome, where the tank is stable and thriving until one day it isn't. This knowledge requires an evolutionary leap from just seeing is believing and only acting on what our eyes can see to knowledge is believing and implementing methods that avoid issues altogether, rather than trying to catch them and identify challenges that are simply unrealistic to guess correctly. Good news, the solutions are simple and likely things that you're already doing. A skimmer pulls out not just nitrogen and phosphorus, but also everything in the uneaten fish food or waste that it captures. Frequently changed filter socks and roller mats will do the same thing. If either catches half the waste before it breaks down and removes it from the tank, they push what would be a problem in 18 months of additions out to 36 months, but combined with other good practices, it may be years or even indefinitely, but they do need to work well and be maintained to do that. A good water change schedule can do that for many pollutants as well. Hamza's Reef has a cool tool called Effect of Water Change Calculator. For instance, if I had a 100 gallon tank and each month added 0.1 parts per million of some unknown contaminant and did zero water changes, at the end of four years or 48 months, it would end at 4.8 parts per million, which with many of the contaminants we're talking about today would be poisonous. But if I did 10 gallons or 10% monthly water changes, it would rise rapidly for a year, but then slow down dramatically and cap out at about 0.9 parts per million. However, if I did a 20% change every month, it would rise rapidly for six months where it would slow down and then cap out at only 0.4 parts per million. And if I did a 40% monthly change, it would never rise over 0.1 parts per million added each month, even after four years of addition. You may now better understand why we suggest 1.5% daily, 10% weekly, or 35% monthly, which are effectively similar as being near ideal water change schedule for most reefers and what we do on the tanks here at 52SE. However, what skimmers, rollers, and water changes don't cover completely is the bioaccumulation effect. You can't remove it if it's bound up in the coral's tissue. However, keeping the levels low with those tools will greatly reduce what the corals can accumulate and may make it a non-issue in any realistic time frame. But there are other filters like algae scrubbers and refugiums that are living organisms that also bioaccumulate unhealthy metals, copper, or potentially toxic elements into their cellular structure where it is not available to the corals. You can grab a handful 
and effectively export it from the tank. So regardless of where you're at with your tank, just starting or years in, understanding these mechanisms are the reason why best practice filtration and maintenance like water changes or algae export produce much higher percentage results. Haven't been perfect about it? Not a big deal. Start now and stop the progression. And coral growth will be your solution to diluting what's already been bioaccumulated in the coral's tissue. On to nitrate and phosphate, the most hotly debated subject in reefing with no satisfyingly definitive answer that even a majority agrees on, but there are better paths than others and mentalities that lead to higher success rates than others. We're gonna take some risks today and likely gonna get roasted by some, but pushing the boundaries on nutrients and furthering the conversation is worth it. Normally we would share the science, thought leaders' positions, and where all of our experience has produced the best result make our case, and then after, share our approach that matches that. More or less, the process that anyone would use to build best practice decisions. This time, I'm gonna share our approach right up front, share all the supporting evidence and science and experience after. First, the right answer is not universal. It has to be applied to a goal. Our goal with these seven tanks is a safe range for the tanks. Multi-year success with not just hardy corals, but also moderate to even sensitive corals with the highest multi-year success rates with an approach that doesn't require us to play mad scientists with the tanks addicted to removal medias, chemicals, or constant nutrient testing. Most importantly, it has a clear why it's done this way so we can understand what's happening and how to use the test results that we do perform and adjust when the inevitable challenges materialize. First, we're going to select our range for inorganic phosphate at a goal of 0.1 parts per million, but an operating range of 0.05 to 0.15 parts per million that provides a buffer in either direction. If it goes outside of that, I would act and make changes to my approach of water, how much I feed, filtration, dilution, or water changes. 0.05 to 0.15 parts per million phosphates achievable by a wide range of skill sets, common equipment, and maintenance practices done right shouldn't require the use of constant phosphate removers. While GFO and solutions like lanthium chloride removers are great for solving periodic problems, we actually want to avoid their constant use in medias or chemicals that both add or remove many other elements or pollutants somewhat indiscriminately. Now, I probably haven't ruffled that many feathers with a goal of 0.1 parts per million phosphate or even an effective range of 0.05 to 0.15 before action. This is just a range where we believe any material negatives phosphates might have is outweighed by the benefits of an easy to achieve zone. Some reefers might argue higher or lower and that's fine. More important than picking our number is to pick a number. Any reasonable goal range will be more successful than no goal. Just a range where if it was over or under, you would do something about it. For some of you, that range will be small. For others, it'll be large. But the point is, use your best judgment as to when too much of a good thing becomes pollution or poison and act. We suggest measuring phosphate just once a month or 12 times a year, and then track it in an app that can graph it. The only thing that you should care about is just it's not perpetually rising every month because that's a path to nowhere good. More specifically, it's a path to pollution becoming poison. Not the kind that causes rapid mortalities, just more susceptible to other stresses or subtle changes in health and coloration that may not be noticed if the effects are gradual. If it's rising month after month, then just change what or how you feed or up your filtration game. We'll show you how to do that today as well. There are a bunch of phone app options out there that are just a few bucks to free. Aquarimate, Aquatic Log, Pocket Marine, and most controllers or monitor apps have a graphing function built in. As to nitrate levels, this might be the most controversial statement and where all of the debate about today's video will be had. I have no specific nitrate goal. Just let it land where it's going to land. 
The rationale for that considers the relationship of nitrate to phosphate in our foods. The ratio of nitrate to phosphate in most fish foods is in the range of 5 to 1 to 30 to 1. Without considering uptake in the tank, that means that our goal of 0.05 to 0.15 phosphate should produce around a range of 0.25 to 4.5 parts per million nitrate. I'd be most happy if it was in the middle of that, around two parts per million. Once you consider the different biological uptake ratios of various fish, their growth states, coral bacteria, and algae types, it might land at a different ratio that develops in the tank, but the point is get phosphate stable without removers and then track nitrate monthly in your app to see where it stabilizes. My preference is below five parts per million nitrate, but a lot of successful reefers let it stabilize as high as 20. Regardless, act once it's beyond your threshold. If you don't have one, pick one because any threshold is better than no threshold. There's one other piece of this puzzle. We're going to make sure we have ample sources of organic sources of nitrogen and phosphorus for the corals. We won't be stingy with fish foods. Most tanks will have a healthy amount of fish. We'll dose amino acids and particulate foods like reef roids, reef blizzard, or reef chili to meet those needs. Some animals that will accept larger prey will feed that as well. We'll use filtration or remove what isn't utilized so it doesn't pollute the tank. More common terms, heavy in, heavy out. There is a difference between inorganic and organic sources of nitrogen and phosphorus and something that I believe that only a small portion of the hobby has embraced or attempted to account for in their tanks, which represents a huge advancement opportunity for the hobby and the success rates with our animals. Inorganic nitrate and phosphate is near completely broken down and testable with our nitrate and phosphate test kits. Inorganic is also readily available for uptake by algae and other pests. Organic nitrogen and phosphorus is harder to test for, and as the name suggests, organic particles of fish food, fish waste, bacteria, plankton, and dissolved organics or particulate organics in coral foods. Many sources of organic nitrogen and phosphorus, like particulate foods, is biologically less available for uptake by algae and other pests. Coral polyps have mouths, as well as active transport mechanisms in their tissue to capture organic prey, particulates, and dissolved organics. So many wild corals acquire much of their phosphorus and nitrogen needs, as well as essential fatty and amino acids in the ocean's reefs. Most corals are not heavily dependent on inorganic nitrate and phosphate, which is nearly undetectable in most healthy ocean reefs. The corals in our aquarium may just shift to dependence on that inorganic nitrate and phosphate when organic nitrogen and phosphorus containing prey and particulates are simply not available. Now that we've shared what we're going to do, time to share why we're going to do it this way with the tanks in 52SE, starting with what science and experience has told us. First, why did the hobby chase 0.00 or no phosphate or 0.03, which is near zero for so long? And why is that now often considered a flawed approach? Answer is back in the day, we were all fighting algae. It was one of the biggest problems that the average reefer faced. Science told us if we reduce phosphate to 0.03 or below, it inhibit algae growth. And they were right. If you maintain those low levels, a vast majority of algae would near stop growing in the tank. However, this is what I would call the whack-a-mole approach to reefing, where when you hit one thing with a hammer, another pops its head up. What this didn't consider is that zooxanthellae within the coral is an algae, so starving the tank of phosphate to stunt algae growth will starve the zooxanthellae and ultimately stunt the coral growth, or in extremes, starve them to sickness or mortality. Now, the problem in reefing is that's not always true, and the answer is always more complex than a yes or no. Some tanks thrive at zero testable phosphate, but how can that be? The answer is organic phosphorus. For instance, on my first tank, I used GFO religiously to keep algae out of the tank, but I also made homemade frozen fish food filled with organic particulates and nutrients. Check out the video called DIY Reef Chili. I did end up with sky-high nitrate levels because I didn't address that. 
Net result is the tank thrived, and I didn't actually have to test for phosphate because when the GFO was exhausted, the excess nitrate would cause the algae to take off with any material phosphate level. I also periodically lost corals or fish for unknown reasons over time. I would now tell you that I wholeheartedly believe that was the net result of nitrate polluted water and whatever comes with that nitrate that's not phosphate or easy to test for 20 years ago. While I was happy with the GFO-based result, it isn't a path that I emulate in a reef tank now. I do believe the constant use of GFO in a fish-only tank where there's no corals is worth considering, but I would still have a nitrate goal. There are more advanced approaches, for instance, the BRS-160. We followed a loose version of Zeovit, which has zero or near zero phosphate for much of the tank's existence. The nature of Zeovit is to run near zero inorganic phosphate and nitrate to prevent algae growth and reduce the population of brown zooxanthellae in the coral so the coral's color and fluorescent pigments pop. They do that by feeding amino acids and other organic nutrients like bacterial mulm on the zeolite media to the corals to provide for their nutritional needs and make them less reliant on that zooxanthellae, which can reduce the desirable coloration. This worked on the 160 in Jason's tank, which was religiously run zeovit tank, but also requires you to feed these nutrient sources constantly and then scale them with growth. At times when we got lazy with the 160, the coral showed it within weeks. I would run the Zeovit approach again, and it even fits my tinkering or perfecting part of the hobby that I enjoy. But I would never run seven tanks this way because it's too much effort. And I think the value of the reefing community is to teach less cutting edge, easier to replicate methods. Those methods based on personal successes, failures, and experience, but also consider science and biology. My first lesson on phosphate came from Randy Holmes Farley's article, Phosphate and the Reef Aquarium. The article suggests that it's likely that phosphate inhibits the production of calcium carbonate skeletal structure and share studies showing that levels as low as 0.19 parts per million for as little as three hours a day can slow skeletal growth by as much as 43% with Piscillopora and similar results with Acropora. What was most compelling for me is this study was done in the ocean on a healthy reef that also has natural sources of organic phosphate, which many lab experiments don't address. I found that Randy Holmes Farley's general counsel in this article to be compelling, and it served as a foundational element for much of the hobby's views on phosphate in their reef tanks. There are many other articles like it, most of them suggesting below 0.1 parts per million phosphate for sensitive species of coral like Acros. However, there are other studies that present a different result that shows how complicated all of this conversation can be. For example, effects of phosphate on growth and skeletal density, a controlled experimental approach published in the Journal of Experimental Marine Biology and Ecology. In this study, they exposed Acropora to phosphate levels of 0.09, 0.2, and 0.5 parts per million for four months. Growth rates were the highest at the phosphate concentration of 0.5 parts per million, which is higher than we're told to maintain in our tanks. The highest levels of phosphates also produced no visible signs of stress on the corals. However, it did affect what you can't see with the naked eye. The skeleton was significantly more brittle, had a much lower density, which scaled up with the concentrations of phosphate. More or less, it would seem that the increased phosphate increased the zooxanthellae populations and the amount of energy they produced, which overcame the phosphate effects on the skeleton. However, contrary to what you might think, they finished by saying coral growth alone is a poor indicator of reef health. High growth rates that produce poor skeletal structure is not what I'd consider ideal health either. Sacrifices are being made. What's interesting about this study is it's done in an artificial environment, which in some ways is more similar to our tanks than studies performed on a natural reef. However, in other ways, it introduces a myriad of variables and interferences that may be different than our tanks. 
number of fish, amount of food, what type and frequency of organic coral foods, flow, and other influences that what we as Aquarius deal with and likely why so many of our results are so different from each other's. Also compelling is a study called Context-Dependent Effects on Nutrient Loading on the Coral Algal Mutualism. In this study, they addressed the fact that all these individual studies suggest complex, even contradictory relationships amongst nutrient availability, coral physiology, and coral growth. So they attempted to look at dozens of popular studies on elevated nitrate and phosphate to find the consistencies between them all. More or less, this is what they found. Overall, they found that over a wide range of concentrations, nitrogen reduced coral calcification by 11% on average, but enhanced metrics of coral photobiology, such as the photosynthetic rate. In contrast, phosphorus enrichments increased the average calcification rate by 9%, likely through direct impacts on the calcification process, but minimally impacted coral photobiology. This is not what we'd expect to see from elevated phosphorus, but I believe the most important thing that they found, and maybe the most important lesson of this entire video, is naturally occurring enrichment from fish excretion increased coral growth, while human-mediated enrichment tended to decrease coral growth. Essentially, dosing nitrate and phosphate into the system or pollution from runoff in the wild did have negative effects on corals, but the nutrients from fish poop and other biological waste increased growth. There's nuance here that goes beyond just nitrate and phosphate levels, and it would seem that feeding your fish generously might be the best path. It matches my experience with the DIY reef chili on my first tank. It may even explain the organic approaches from methods like Zeovit. Sadly, one of the things that these studies miss is it doesn't look at does it produce a colorful display aquarium. In fact, they imply that it'll have a negative impact on that because most of the studies state that elevated inorganic nitrate and phosphate increases the zooxanthellae population density, which we as aquarists know causes the corals to appear brown as a zooxanthellae overpowers the coral's natural color and fluorescent pigments. It's also worth noting that while many of these studies are elevated nitrate and phosphate by science standard or standards of levels found in most healthy reefs, most of these studies are testing levels that are still much lower than what most reefers would call a dirty tank. Okay, now that we know the goal as well as why we have it, how does somebody actually achieve and maintain 0.1 phosphate and the related level of nitrate in the tank without the constant use of phosphate removers? The answer is simple. The levels drift out of your zone, match the food input to the export or filtration. That could be as simple as water changes. If 10% a month or a week isn't cutting it, try 15% and so on. This can be achieved completely with water changes alone and no other filters. This is particularly valuable in a smaller tank like a 12 gallon dice or 40 breeder. The cost of salt is immaterial to the cost of gear if a bucket of salt and 10% weekly water changes last one to three years. All the gear is designed simply to reduce the dependence on water changes because they represent manual labor and maintenance tasks that we would like to avoid. First, if it makes sense, just feed less. Don't starve the animals, but if 20% less food would go unnoticed, then try that. Also consider changing what you feed. Frozen is less nutrient dense because of the water content. So for newer reefers, frozen is a lot harder to overfeed than pellets. But also consider that some foods have way higher phosphate to nitrate ratios than others, so you could try changing it. For example, many shrimp-based options without preservatives will have very little phosphate. However, something like a silverside will have very high phosphate because of the high phosphate content in the skeletal structure of the fish. For that reason, foods with fish meal that have ground up bones may be higher as well. The point here isn't that any one of these foods is better than another, only that you try something else if you don't like the natural ratio it produces in the tank. Use it for a month and see where the tank lands. 
Try an auto feeder. Auto feeders are notorious for causing nutrient problems because you end up feeding too much, but they can also be the opposite. Count your fish, decide how many pellets you want to feed a day, then set up your auto feeder to feed that many. It won't be perfect, but it will likely be more predictable and easier to adjust than randomly throwing some food in. A protein skimmer does that by removing the food before it breaks down entirely, tunable by both performance adjustments and quality, but also simply by the number of hours it's on if it works too well. We'll have an entire episode on protein skimmers, but the gist of it is, if you want to pull out more poo, a DC option that has tunable flow and air pump will help you do that in the widest array of tanks, including your own tank's journey from a few fish to many fish and the related food input. The Air Aqua from MaxSpec being both mine and William, who cares for these tanks, favorite skimmer that we've used. A filter slot or roller also works, but to be frank, it might be something used in the early stages of the tank where a coral uptake is small, but wean off of as the corals grow and require more organics. It's my personal viewpoint that with the right flow or suspension techniques, that filter rollers can be more effective than a skimmer because they capture a lot of that waste before it's broken down at all and remove it effortlessly. The problem is if your approach to nutrients includes a lot of organic particulates, that felt roller may strip them out too rapidly. There are always ways around that, and there's some betters than others. It's no surprise that 52SE will have a complete felt, pad, and roller episode as well. An algae scrubber or refugium is also near a complete solution of its own. Most people who run an effective scrubber or fuge will never worry about elevated nutrients and arguably the easiest way to achieve that goal. These two approaches based on algae growth, uptaking nitrate, phosphate, are also one of the best solutions for those who want to maintain elevated organic nitrogen and phosphorus particulates or dissolved organics for the corals to capture and really only care about eliminating that excess nitrate and phosphate. Guess what? 52SE will also have a complete video on our updated knowledge on scrubbers and fuges as well. Carbon dosing, which is yet another organic method of reducing nutrients via bacterial growth. In this case, I would personally gravitate to an actual system based on carbon dosing rather than just throw carbon dosing knee-jerk into what I'm already doing. Zeovit being the most time-tested and robust approach, Red Sea's NO3PO4X and Reef Care, another popular but looser guideline option. Carbon dosing will of course have its own 52SE episode as well, all of these things deserving their own complete look. Next episode, the second biggest source of pollutants and maybe the most toxic, freshwater and RODI. I'm certain that 90% of reefers are using them for the wrong reason. Everything that we've learned since 52 OG, when you're done, you'll say, how did I not know this about something I thought I knew everything on? That and the entire 52SE playlist right here.